The uh, scripture reading for today comes from Revelation chapter 21, verses 10 through 27. Again, Revelation 21, 10 through 27. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. At the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its walls, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurements, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city's walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third, third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carmelion, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Last week, Doug shared the first part of our study in Revelation with the first nine verses of Revelation 21. He talked about the exciting expectation of a new home, and today we focus on the expectation of a new city. We'll talk more about that. He, he re referenced the fourth home that he referred to was the city, the, the, uh, this very, very different kind of home that is unusual and it's not what we're used to or what we think about uh, when we think of cities today. But to begin with, I'd like you to, first of all, uh, think about what is the most beautiful place that you have ever been 
or ever seen. You just get that in mind. While you're thinking about that, we I needed a pop opener, a pop opener, a bottle opener, and uh, Cheryl got it off the fridge, and it was one of the Grand Canyon. And you know, the Grand Canyon is so vast and huge, and yet it fits on a little picture this big. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, that that opener doesn't do justice to the view of the Grand Canyon. Now, I don't know what came to mind for you. Maybe it was the place that you visited, particular site. Um, maybe it was had mountains in it. That would always be the case for me. I love mountains. Uh, maybe it's the Caribbean. Maybe it's a magnificent field of flowers or a forest uh, or, a, or a painted desert. Perhaps it's... Uh, uh, a, a recent visit to Alaska, uh, perhaps it's Hawaii, uh, perhaps it's Australia or, or somewhere, whatever that comes to mind, the most beautiful place you've ever been. And then we turn to this passage and find out that there's something even bigger than that. You know, one of the difficulties we have right now is is the fact that we think of cities as places that are not very safe and we'll talk more about this in a, in a minute but uh, that is not the imagery all of that changes and so so all of the terrible things that we think of here on earth will be gone They're, they will be changed I, I was struck by um, I don't know how you are with things wearing out you know there was a book that was put out called planned obsolescence meaning that it's what companies do is you have a strategy for selling more products by making sure that your product wears out in a certain period of time now, if you're really smart, you get in on the repair business because you know something's going to break down. And then you can be part of that, replacing it or repairing it. Um, but companies do this until something new comes along. And I'll give you an example. You know, in the, in the 60s, 70s, all of a sudden, uh, the Japanese market for cars started to outsell the American car companies. And you know what it did? It forced the American companies to make better cars. I'll tell you one more recent. Harry's Razors. Have you ever seen the advertisement for Harry's Razors? You ever get these five, oh, these great Schick and Gillette, and these, these are the best you can get? And, and all of a sudden you start cutting yourself after about five or six uses. Not with Harry's. <laughs> Harry's is good. It lasts for a period of a few months or more uh, on one blade. Plus you don't have to spend as much money for the blades. Well, guess who went to their research department? I'm sure they laughed at Harry's when this guy did it pretty much out of, out of his home, kind of, you know, Scotty, barely getting started, didn't have money even for advertising. 
And all of a sudden now those companies are scrambling in their research department saying, we got to compete. We have to make it better. Point of the, is this. In this world, everything, because of sin and because of the brokenness and the selfishness, everything will break down. It will wear out. Our bodies will wear out. And, and so the reality of understanding more about what heaven's like is an important one to, to get into place. Andy Stanley in his book, How Good is Good Enough, tells the story of a Sunday school teacher who wanted to explain to the six-year-olds in his class what someone had to do in order to go to heaven. However, he wanted the kids already, he wanted to know what the kids knew about the subject. Great concept of starting that way. So he asked a few questions. He said to the, them, now kids, if I sold my house and my car and had a big sale and gave all my money to the church, he asked, would that get me into heaven? Those children said, no, that would not get him into heaven. And so uh, he was encouraged by their answer. You know, they, they understood. And then he said, if I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard and kept everything neat and tidy, would that get me into heaven? Good answer. That's what the kids said. They said, no. He said, well then, if, if I was, were kind to animals and gave candy to all the children and loved my wife, would that get me into heaven? No. That's right. And so finally the teacher looked at the class and he said, so how can I get to heaven? And a boy in the back row stood up and shouted, you got to be dead. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, you basically understand that you don't go to heaven until we're done here. But we will wear out. And we will come to that point for everyone. And we want to be ready for that. So I'm not sure uh, these, uh, you know, thinking about these questions and about our destiny is really um, what um, John was interested in teaching us uh, about the, the uh, importance of understanding and the vision that he was given uh, for, for heaven itself. Now let's be clear about one thing. John did not write this book as a secret code or a mathematical equation for you to decipher on the timetable of Jesus' return. That's not why it was written. It's not for us to figure out exactly what happens and exactly when it will happen, to know the times and the places and everything there is to know about it. But we are called and have this vision being given by John, given to John, to bring us hope and to challenge not only the people of his day, 
but the people and the church and every generation of people to a better understanding. So let's walk through the text just briefly. Uh, won't take a lot of time with this. In scripture, this new, the, the city of Jerusalem that John is seeing and the vision he's seeing has a number of names. It's called sometimes the New Jerusalem, the Heavenly Jerusalem, the Holy City, Holy Jerusalem, the city of my God, the great city. In John uh, 21, I mean in Revelation 21, uh, 9 and 10, these verses say the angel carries John away to this high mountain and shows him this glorious city. And we see the city walls and they're made of, uh, of jasper. Um, and it's clear as crystal. And the glory of God, it says, glitters off the city as though the buildings are crystal clear. And we see this imagery of the 12 gates. And some would say that the 12 gates, three in every direction, north, south, east, and west, was an indication that the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ is open to everyone as they choose to come in to the holiness of a relationship with God. That that is God's desire, that everyone would be saved. Not everyone chooses to enter, but that imagery of those gates is there. And they have the 12, it says they have the 12 tribes of Israel named on them. And that is, uh, is a recognition uh, of the, the history of God's leading his people or desiring to lead his people and trying to encourage them into faithfulness. The second thing about the gates is that they're each guarded by 12 angels. Uh, which is uh, an imagery of security. It's an imagery of protection. It's also an imagery of, of the holiness of, of God's city and coming into it. Now, again, I'm going to remind you uh, repeatedly, the imagery of the city is, is an image of coming into the kingdom of God and coming into a relationship with, with God. And, uh, and it goes on in verse 14, it talks about the 12 foundations. And they have the, the foundations, uh, have the names of the 12 apostles on them. Now this city is square. Let me just say a, a bit about that. The city is, if you measured from the east coast to Denver... That's about 1,400 miles. The dimensions are in here, but you may not decipher it by the measurement of cubits and, and the, uh, I forget the other term the, the, that is used for it, but basically uh, the dimensions are about 1,400 wide, 1,400 long. So, so te uh, Mexico to Canada, Denver to the East Coast. And... Get this, this city also goes, it's a cube. It goes 1,400 miles high. Now, just to put it in perspective, 
the, the, uh, the, the satellites that orbit the Earth. In fact, the space station is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, roughly 200 miles above. Think about another 1,200 miles. We're talking this massive, massive city. And I thought when I lived in LA, it was big. You could drive 25 miles from one, 30 miles from one end to the other. Chicago, uh, that, that's, you wanna get to O'Hare Airport, you basically gotta drive a, at least 30 miles out around and to, to get up there to the airport. We think our cities are big. Our cities have nothing compared to the city that God is building and preparing for us. And, and so the dimensions of this are amazing. And again, the significance of that isn't the actual and specific size. The significance of it for John is that this is an incredible something so far beyond our imagination. And when you talk about the, the, the content, think about the gates. The gates were made of pearls. Think about how big the gates would be to a city that is 1,400 miles cubed. Now that is one big pearl. And that would be one big oyster. <laughs> and there would be an oyster feast. <laughs> but the, the amazing part, and then you talk about all of these gems. And Doug, you did a great job of pronouncing all of them. That was pretty good. I wasn't sure how he was going to, I thought I'd you know, throw him a little curve there. He did pretty good. These incredible, the most valuable gems in the world. Some of those you may not recognize the name. Some of those are the same gem. We just use a different name for them now. But these, this list is, is just everywhere you look. The streets, not only, it says, not only made of gold, but almost, uh, almost clear and shining. Um, you, can't, you can't quite grasp it. How great this is. And these, the imagery of this is basically given to John for us to understand how much God wants us to be blessed and to be rewarded for our faithfulness in following God and in moving forward. There are four things real quickly that we first of all want to acknowledge and then we'll talk to some more talk about a couple of more specific points but there are four things that we learn about heaven from this passage in 21 two things are about things that won't be there and two things are about those that will be there the first is this there will not be danger darkness fear imperfections how much do we pay attention to how we look? And we aren't going to care. When you're surrounded by gems and gold and everything, everybody looks good. And everybody sings very, very well. Yeah, think about that. I mean, I'm up here belting out a song. Uh, you know, that, that I will just say as a side note, this is what convinced me that I really don't care what my voice sounds like. Because 
I know this, that the sound of any voice praising God, giving thanks to God, the sound of any heart, so even if it's not out loud, the sound of any heart giving praise to God, giving thanks to God, sounds the same to God as the top vocalist in our congregation. I don't know who that is, but it's not me. I'll tell you that. In the understanding is that in the kingdom of heaven, those things don't matter. But the praise and the offering of our hearts are what matters. But we know that there will not be danger. Think about the fears. We, we have fears for our, our children traveling. We have fears for how it's going to go at, at school for the coming year. We have all kinds of fears for our friends or fears for our parents of things that, that can or may happen. And um, I was drawn to the song. I won't share a lot of the lyrics, but from the Casting Crowns did a song um, entitled Scars in Heaven. And the chorus goes like this. The only scars in heaven, they won't belong to me and you. There'll be no such thing as broken, and all the old will be made new. And the thought that makes me smile now, even as tears fall down, is that the only scars in heaven will be on the, are on the hands that hold you now. The only scars that will there will be the scars of Jesus' hands to demonstrate what he did for us that we would have no more scars. All of the brokenness. Think about a world and think about a, a place where there is no fear. It's a powerful thing. So the absence of those things, no more tears, no more fears, no more imperfections or darkness. There also, and this is one of the most surprising things about this passage to the first read that you make of it. There will be no new temple. Wow. You mean, you mean the temple won't be rebuilt? The temple won't be reproduced in the same way that it always was? The temple for the children of Israel was the center place of God. The temple was the place where they were most felt the closest to God and where they worshipped God. The temple was the thing that was the highest priority when they came out of uh, captivity and came back into the promised land. And the goal of coming out of Babylon and the other exiles was to basically rebuild the temple and strengthen the temple to be able to have a place like this. Wow! This is so beautiful. But... In heaven, there's no new temple. In fact, in verse 22, it says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord, the Almighty God, is its temple and the Lamb. You remember in the, in the way the temple was structured. Let's say that we had a wall built from that pillar over there around here to that pillar over there and we walled it off and you would never ever 
ever. You could come to church, but you could never see into this holy of holies, into the place where God truly dwells, into the place where people have this, this privilege as a pastor or a leader or a priest or whatever to, to be able to encounter God so that then we come out and we impart to you. Now, there is no wall in heaven because there is no temple in heaven because there is in its place a relationship with God. So there are no more tears, there's no more fears, and there's no more temple. What is there? The presence of God is there. And that presence is so powerful that it, it, it shows and it looks and it feels like the powerful presence, not, not only the presence of God, but the glory of God. So if you thought there was glory in all the pearls and gems and gold, where the greater glory is that's there is the sense of peace and joy and to know that you are never, ever, ever alone. Never alone. And so the reason that the temple is not there is because... God's presence is there. And no believer will ever be without the full and perfect knowledge of God's spirit and presence. That means there will be no unbroken worship. No matter what the service or the work of the believer will be performing, no matter where, where the believer is serving throughout the universe, the fellowship will be unbroken. So the, let's conclude here. The point is not the place. That's the irony of it. You go through all this detail of what the building's going to look like, 1,400 miles cubed, but the important thing isn't the place. The important thing are God's people. When God is reunited with his bride, or us, the church, it will be glorious. And all the elements of the heavenly city are something that maybe artists want to depict. And we can look at all of those things that were listed there. But the important thing is the, is the beauty of a presence and a relationship with God. No more hurts. For those of you that are younger, if you've ever had somebody say something about you to somebody else, there's going to be no more he said, she said. There's going to be no more of these crazy arguments that we, we get into. There is this sense of oneness and peace. And the second thing is that God gives us the privilege of being in that heavenly city. It's a sense of being finally home, the kind of home that Doug was talking about last week, that that place where it feels like it's special and it is home. The third thing is that it's not just a return back to the garden, but it's a step forward. It's a great city where once, of the, once again, the, the beauty of all the cultures and all the differences of all of, of that are even represented right here this morning, 
all of that from all over the world will come together in love and unity as one for those in the city of God. And heaven is beautiful with no more dying, no more crying. Um, Pastor Jack Hayford visited a guy by the name of Carl in the hospital. Jack Hayford was a pastor at a major church in L.A. when I was out there in seminary. And so I went to hear him preach a couple of times. Uh, Great, great preacher. And he sat by Carl's bedside and he said, Carl, how are you feeling? Carl was a man of deep faith and commitment to Christ. He was also a very highly experienced and respected lighting director for CBS. So for shows and stuff, he directed all of this lighting and all of the complicated stuff. He did all of that. And he looked at the pastor and he, his eyes teared up a little and he said, Pastor Jack, you know, when you're in my business, it's the combination of lights, the skill of blending things together in order to create special effects. That's what this job is about. He said, this morning, I woke up And in the quiet of my heart, Jesus spoke to me and he said, Carl, how would you like to direct a sunset? Wow. What would that be like? I don't paint. I'm terrible with painting and drawing. But how would I like to paint a mountain view? How would... It's, it's the thought of understanding how freeing and how amazing when all of the pain and the suffering is gone and the joy replaces it, the freedom to be as one with God in beauty and in creativity as well. And finally, we can... By presenting our hearts to the Lord, we can have a true heaven within us. That's why people stay calm and can have peace in the middle of being tortured and under turmoil, in illness, still praising God. That's how in many of the Psalms, David would be able to say, Lord, please help me, help me, help me. Yet, Lord, even if you don't, I will be faithful to you. I will love you. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if the Lord does not spare us, we will not bow down to any other gods but you. Faithfulness, the beauty of God's presence within us, motivates us to be able to have a peace that that makes no sense in this world. We're overcomers. We were created to be overcomers. We're created to live in victory. And we're created to bring the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven here on earth now within us. That's where it begins. So people talk about making a decision for Jesus. It's not just some cheap phrase. That making a decision to invite God into our hearts and to invite the Lord Jesus to be the Lord of my life 
is to invite heaven to come within and to give me a peace that other people will not have till they enter the spiritual gates of the great, great city. We are being given an incredible invitation. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought the most of the next. And then he also concluded, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. So you want to be effective, you want to be successful, you want to make a, you want to have a life that is meaningful, embrace the kingdom of heaven. Embrace the one who is the Lord of all and over all and in all and through all. Embrace that relationship and accept the invitation to come in to the city. In 1975, Lisa Green was three years old when a fire totally engulfed her family's home in Brooklyn, New York. Firefighter Marvin Bunch arrived at the scene to find three women on the porch of that burning house. And they were screaming that their children were trapped upstairs. Marvin crawled and clawed his way up those fiery stairs while they were in flames and brought Lisa out unconscious in his arms. Two other children were also rescued that day. Fourteen years later, Lisa called the New York City Fire Department and learned that the man who saved her life was a retired captain living in Las Vegas. Lisa's family brought Marvin and his whole family to New York as guests of honor for Lisa's high school graduation. Lisa was overjoyed to be in the presence of the one who had risked his life to save hers. Imagine how thrilled we will be to be in the presence of the one who gave his life to save ours. This is what God promises to all who trust in Jesus. May we trust in Jesus. May we indeed experience the glory of God's presence here and now and for eternity. Amen.